welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Lyle Goldstein, Director for Asia Engagement at Defense Priorities and a visiting professor at Brown University. Lyle, welcome to the show. Oh, I'm so happy to be here, John. I'm a, I'm a very big fan of this podcast. Thanks very much. Um, we're going to be talking about great power competition, as it's referred to in um, policy discussions. Um, and uh, just to start us out, in a big picture kind of way, talk a little bit about what the U.S. approach to Russia and China has been in this kind of era of what policymakers are calling great power competition. How are the approaches similar to each country, different? How should they be different given their dis different situations and so on? Yeah, that, that's um, there's a lot there. Let me let me see if I can unpack each piece. I mean, generally, I would say, um, you know, it's important to state up front that great power competition, you know, has always been there. I, I've never known a period in my life where we didn't have that. I mean, arguably during the just the year, a few years after the Gulf War, there was some some a little bit of respite and and uh, things calmed down. But I mean. Uh, you know, I can, you know, it's easy to remember uh, when I was first starting my career at Naval War College, I'm, I'm no longer there. But when I first started there, it was a um, one reason I think I was hired was there was this incident in the South China Sea where where a, uh, a U.S. and Chinese aircraft collided. Unfortunately, uh, the Chinese pilot was killed. But I mean, that, you know, clearly uh, signaled a kind of new step. Uh, there were other steps, but, uh, you know, I, I cannot remember a time when when uh, we were not in a sort of great power competition. And then, of course, all the uh, issues with Russia. So, you know, uh, yes, it, from a kind of branding point of view and having worked for DOD, I can say uh, DOD likes branding very much. You know, it helps, basically helps to align everybody behind the same set of goals. So uh, I would also say for, you know, not to psychoanalyze too much, but I think that uh, people in DOD wanted to turn a page on the whole um fiasco in Afghanistan and the Iraq war and a lot of failed interventions in the Middle East. And, and this great power competition was a very easy way to say, hey, folks, you know, been there, done that. We're finished with these kind of uh, small interventions. Now we're hunting big game. And, you know, those require big thinking, big ticket items, very clever strategies and so forth. So, I mean, you know, I, I most of this I view as kind of branding, uh, you know, powers, the great powers are always in competition. You know, this this never stopped. It, it shall always be. You know, I'm a realist, and, and that's how I see it. I mean, is it intensifying? Absolutely, yes. Uh, there is an intensification here because of the war in Ukraine. And uh, it, it, just to get to the last part of your question, treating them differently, yes, I think we do need to think quite differently about the two challenges. You know, uh, I don't think we should overestimate uh, Russian weakness, uh, clearly, but... Uh, on the other hand, you know, I and others have noted Russia has a uh, economy that or Russia's defense spending, for example, is about one twentieth of NATO aggregate. Right. So to me, we have long overestimated uh, Russian military power. Um, we should be much more relaxed about it and, and less, um, you know, obsessed with it and with containing Russia on China. China is you know, much more formidable competitor, if you will. I'm not saying anything. I'm not teaching your listeners here anything. They all know that, uh, you know, its economy is extremely robust. I've spent a lot of time in China walking around, you know, uh, second, third, fourth tier cities. And I can tell you the Chinese economy is is not, you know, uh, 
it, it is robust uh, and dynamic. Uh, we shouldn't underestimate China at all. Um, that said, though, you know, China in many ways uh, is self-confident. Mm, they have acted, I think, with a good amount of restraint. So, you know, whereas Russia has felt the need to resort to force with, with greater frequency. So, you know, yeah, there are a lot of nuances here. And we'd be very foolish to kind of treat them as, as um, you know, just uh, great power X and Y. So I appreciate the kind of long view of history that you gave us and reminding us that this kind of competition is kind of endemic in, in the international system. Uh, the policy discourse on it these days seems pretty broad to me. People are trying to imagine how this era of competition could be different than, than past ones. But I find it interesting that um, you know, traditional kind of territorial disputes with each of these great powers is a major part of the relationship uh, that's unfolding. So, for example, Russia has uh, gripes about NATO enlargement in Europe and, um, you know, lashes out in Georgia and Ukraine and so on. China uh, is uh, has territorial and maritime disputes in the South China Sea and also has this problem of, of the Taiwan issue, which we'll get to. Um, and so I want to talk about these territorial disputes for a little bit. Let's start with Russia, given the ongoing war. What's your assessment of Russia's motivations in Ukraine? And, and to what extent has U.S. policy contributed to those motivations? Okay, well, thanks. Yeah, well, let's let's dig in on the, the war in Ukraine and its origins and so forth. I, and I'll just, you know, I'll give you my general take and, and like everybody else who, who is, well, oh, I think everybody on the planet practically is is uh, absolutely uh, disturbed and and uh, we're repulsed. It's abhorrent the the you know incredible carnage. Uh, so many children, so many orphans now. Um, you know, so I think like every or like most Americans, I'm I'm uh, strongly condemning you know this horrible act of aggression. Um, but I, I think we, we're being uh, intellectually dishonest if we don't to recognize that, uh, you know, that NATO expansion and NATO activities have had a major role in creating this, this uh, horrible outcome. So, you know, here, I guess I, I would strongly agree with uh, thinkers like Mearsheimer and Walt and, and others and many people in the restraint community who are drawing attention to the notion that, that um, NATO played a role. I go back to George Kennan, one of my heroes in uh, realist uh, thought, who, who stated absolutely emphatically in, I, I think it was 1999, interview with uh, Tom Friedman, where he, in the New York Times, you can just Google that. And, and he says very clearly, if we go forward with NATO expansion, this will absolutely cause a new Cold War. It will foment a horrible uh, reaction by uh, Russian nationalists, which it certainly has done. So he was he was uh, right on point. And, uh, you know, I, I worked very hard during the um, last, well, really the last five or six years. I, I kind of because I, I had spent most of my time working on China during my uh, career in Naval War College. But I really tried to reorient and devoted a lot of effort to propose some solutions to the Donbass crisis. For example, I wrote an article in January 2020. Uh, maybe you can link it for your viewers um, where I appraised the first meeting between Putin and Zelensky um, 
that was in the Normandy format together with Merkel and Macron. And this was uh, a really a stunning moment, right, where you had all these four leaders together talking intensively about what to do about Donbass. And I said, look, folks, that w it wasn't a great meeting, but it was a decent meeting. Um, you, you know, we can make this work if we take certain steps, we can find some kind of uh, compromise in Donbass, you know, basically a way to make the Minsk Accord work. So, you know, I, I'm horribly, you know, and by the way, the bottom line of my recommendation was the U.S. really has to engage as a peacemaker here and and stop kind of, you know, encouraging uh, some of the uh, escalation dynamics. And, and it's really regrettable that that got fur much further out of hand since uh, 2020 and a huge opportunity was lost. Let's not forget Zelensky was elected as a peacemaker. He was going to he promised when he was elected and he was elected with an overwhelming majority, he promised to do a deal with Putin to end the war. So it's just this horrible irony that here he is uh, now celebrated today as a wartime leader when he was elected to be a peacemaker and uh, so many opportunities for diplomacy missed. I fear that the United States, you know, could have done much more for peace. And uh, now um, just to give my bottom line up front that uh, I, I think very much, uh, you know, we're seeing huge carnage and destruction and death on a massive scale. I, I would submit maybe perhaps as many as 50,000 are already dead. You know, I, I say, are we going to wait for another 100,000 to die before we consider peace proposals? I would like to see um, lots of peace proposals on the table. Let's see what we can make stick to prevent the uh, this destruction from continuing. You mentioned escalation dynamics there as a result of US policy. Can you be specific and kind of tease that out for us? What about our policies have contributed to that escalation dynamic and what should we do differently to ratchet it down? Yeah. And and here, you know, I, I'm not one of those who's going to claim that this was all on our side. I think this was a kind of multi-headed hydra and, you know, uh, Putin, you know, I, I've studied Putin for many years. And he is somebody who not only is obsessed with security, we all know that, but he's obsessed with Russian pride. Many of his uh, impulses, I do think, are irrational uh, and, um, you know, probably suffered from overconfidence and, and thought that because his use of force in the past was successful, that he could do it again. So, I mean, you know, there are many, you know, he obviously deserves, you know, a lot of blame for this tragedy unquestionably. Uh, and, you know, many people have said he's kind of surrounded by yes men and so forth. So, so you know, there are, I agree with most of those uh, reasons as, as major causes of the conflict. But uh, on the other side, you know, we also need to take some responsibility. And, you know, this is, you know, even in the New York Times, uh, this has been uh, said multiple times here, even by Tom Friedman, who actually brought up the Kennan quote, uh, he brought it up a few days after the invasion started, said, hey, folks, you know, we, we, we're partly responsible. And he's right. So uh, concretely, though, uh, you know, I saw this from my own eyes. Um, and not only was I uh, got a close look at all the activities that the, the US and NATO were involved in in Ukraine, and more or less what we saw in the during the couple few years uh, before the war was more or less a continuous um, rotation of exercises um, that looked an awful lot like uh, Ukraine was being prepared for NATO membership uh, across the board. Uh, and th this was very disturbing to Russians, both at a, at a real practical level, you know, 
but also at a um, at a symbolic level. And um, you know, one other specific example I would mention for would be um, you know I, I deal a lot with naval strategy, right? I taught at Naval War College for twenty years, and there, what we saw was. Um, you know, U.S. taxpayer money, a lot of it going to upgrade all the piers in Odessa. And, you know, they were upgraded to a NATO standard so that they would be able to hold NATO warships, you know, who would be visiting a lot, presumably. And so the Russians watched all this and, uh, you know, found that you know, horribly uh, humiliating. I think uh, I think Putin even mentioned this in his speech uh, right before the war. That was essentially his declaration of war. But he was extremely agitated that Odessa was being basically outfitted as a NATO base uh, for, you know, to uh, enhance NATO maritime power in the Black Sea. So, you know, to me as a realist, that's just an absolutely clear violation of like where, you know, where you are um, uh, really pushing uh, for a maximalist kind of view of security that just uh, runs very roughshod over any kind of concerns. You know, the, we could also talk about missile defenses and those uh, uh, Aegis facilities, Aegis ashore that went into uh, both Romania and Poland. But the Russians repeatedly objected and objected and objected, and we just dismissed all their objections as, uh, as um, you know, not relevant or... or uh, not understanding what we were doing and so forth. But I mean, we, we neglected the, to see how all of these steps, you know, which none of them in itself was like a dramatic um, um, blow to Russian security, but taken in aggregate was seen by the Russians as like a massive conspiracy to build up Ukraine into this uh, sort of fortress Ukraine that would um, forever... Um, contain and and severely damage uh, Russia's security interests. I mean, to state the obvious, and your viewers all know this, but just put it out there that, that I mean, you know, this is all happening, you know, a few hundred miles from Moscow and St. Petersburg or less. So, you know, we in the United States, we would never allow that kind of uh, thing to happen. You know, as everyone has said over and over, if, these, if this was going on in Mexico, we would intervene in about five minutes. And I think that's absolutely true. There have been serious costs to Russia in the war in terms of security, economic, diplomatic costs. But I wonder how you think this looks to China in the context of the Taiwan issue. Does China think it could avoid these costs? Um, is it, uh, is it, does, it, does the war give China pause on Taiwan? What lessons do you think China's learning here? Yeah, I've been watching this really carefully and, and trying to um, ascertain what are these uh, lessons? I mean, you know, there are sort of operational tactical type lessons where I've seen uh, China is clearly, um, uh, although, you know, here China had, had very good proficiency with drone warfare, I should say. I mean, they, you know, they're the leading drone maker in the world, actually. So um, it's not a stretch for them. But I mean, you know, I can see already in their exercise, they seem to be, uh, I, I watch, by the way, I watch Chinese military news every single day. So I can I can tell you that as I watch their exercises, they're taking it up a few notches when it comes to the use of tactical drones, no question. Um, but, uh, you know, another area where I think they'll learn a lot in terms of tactics and operations, uh, urban warfare. Clearly, um, Russia, you know, went in with certain assumptions. And I think, you know, their botched attempt to uh, kind of uh, uh, take Kiev 
and Kharkiv kind of showed uh, the world and, and China in particular that that seizing a city is especially, you know, without destroying it, it is an extremely difficult uh, military operation. And, um, and, and the Chinese were already talking about urban warfare a lot and practicing extensively. So I, I think, you know, they, they were already, you know, perhaps even on par or, or above what, where Russia was at. But I think this shows them that they, you have a lot more, uh, that this is incredibly difficult and they'll have to think very carefully about how urban warfare would take place. After all, Taiwan does have a lot of big cities and a lot of um, uh, large towns and so forth. But um, but generally, you know, I would say my general takeaway is that, yes, China is sobered. You know, that's the conventional wisdom, and I think it's correct. Um, how sobered are they? You know, I think, you know, does anybody think that they thought that Taiwan would be a walk in the park? No, I, I, I don't think Chinese ever thought that. Did they ever think they could just waltz into Taiwan and and uh, without you know having to kill a lot of people or or uh, destroy the island? No. In fact, I've seen uh, I think quite earnest preparation on the Chinese side for for what they would have to do to kind of clean up the rubble, if you will. And uh, you know I'm not I'm not being flippant. I I think they they know they would have to, uh, you know, essentially to rain down uh, enormous uh, destructive power. And by the way, that that's one of the lessons for China is Russia kind of tried to, if you will, have it have their cake and eat it too, that they kind of wanted to intimidate the Ukrainians, hoping they wouldn't fight. And so they I think they went in kind of with a sort of, if you will, uh, I, I know it didn't seem this way, but they kind of tried not to uh, rain down destruction on, you know, the you know, even the center of Kiev, for example, today is not uh, has hardly been touched. The outskirts of Kiev are, are severely damaged, but not the center. So there was an attempt to kind of go in light handed uh, and that failed miserably. Uh, and, and now the Russians have kind of recorrected and going to the opposite extreme, which is terrible, of course, for the uh, people who live in these cities in, in Mariupol and other places. I fear that China, one of China's lessons is, you know, that they they absolutely um will um will need to use a extremely high level of coercion and destruction so that that's very disturbing and um you know other lessons china's learning here you know include uh i think on the issue of surprise for example uh we all know you know russia failed miserably uh in its kind of uh, strategic operational tactical surprise uh just on all counts um and uh so I, I suppose we, we must give uh, U.S. intelligence uh, agencies some credit there um, and, and uh, you know, the various uh, uh, analysts in D.C. Who, who divine from an early point that this really was a real invasion. In the case of Taiwan, I think China will be, um, they, look, they understood already that to accomplish an amphibious invasion, they would need... Uh, to achieve some very high level of surprise. So I think this is something China is quite good at, right? If we look across the cases of Chinese uses of force, and I think they're studying the Ukraine war to see exactly uh, what they would have to do uh, in order to achieve surprise. Uh, we can talk about, you know, the mechanics of that, but I think they are real. And I think China, you know, um, how to put it, even more than with Russia, China has the ability to uh, cloak its actions and um, hide capabilities. After all, that's one of their famous, very famous 
phrases actually that they they are uh, you know going back to Deng Xiaoping that that uh, Ch Chinese should be good at hiding their power um, and I think they are quite good at that so so yeah a lot of lessons for um, for Taiwan I, I fear that it's simply been delayed rather than canceled <laughs> uh, unfortunately and uh, I I do think though we can if you want, we may shift to the question of, of what should we learn from, from this for a Taiwan issue, um, the Taiwan scenario. That, that's another good question we might also chat about. Yeah, I think I'd ask a sort of comparable question here. Um, you know, I'm going to ask you about the policy of strategic ambiguity, as it's referred to, um, and how we've had some recent presidents that have had some difficulty, let's say, clarifying that ambiguity, uh, so to speak. Um, but before we get there, uh, I know this has been wargamed very thoroughly even before the Ukraine war. So what would a U.S. conflict with China over Taiwan look like? Yes, uh, this is something I've, I've really spent the last, uh, well, the last 20 years working on, mostly at Naval War College. But, you know, my I've concluded some years ago that this war would be uh, very bloody, very tragic, uh, and that the, the the most important thing to keep in mind really are the geographical constraints on the one hand, and then the kind of asymmetry of will or the stakes for each country. So let's take those one at a time. Uh, I mean, both are very simple, but they really, in my view, that these are the determinant factors. You know, no matter what kind of fancy new doctrine or technology or great weapon system you want to come up with, uh, there is this problem that Taiwan is located just you know ninety miles off the shore of China, and you know from a strategy point of view, that just gives them incredible options to bring uh, massive firepower at a very uh, rapid rate. I mean, you know. We talk about surprise, for example, you have to mobilize for an invasion, right? You think a lot of that would be visible. But if a lot of the hardest punches that China intends to land against Taiwan are coming from missiles and bombers and helicopters, say, well, that all of that can be moved exceedingly quickly, you know, within really within hours. OK, so, I mean, uh, I, no, I don't think we'll have much warning. And, um, you know, I, I think that... Um, uh, the, the, uh, that, that this probably the war, I mean, most likely it would be over rather quickly, uh, before the U S could even, if you will, make up its mind. I think that's one, one real scenario because after all the dilemmas are huge. And, and by the way, like everybody knows China is a nuclear power. In my view, it's a robust nuclear power that it is, has uh, plenty of capability, uh, uh, hypersonic weapons, um, um, you know, MIRVs, you know, multiple reentry vehicles, uh, you know, so I have no doubt that that they uh, can strike the continental United States with nuclear weapons. So, you know, of course, they're going to flex those nuclear muscles quite like Putin did in the in the opening phase of the war. Um, so there's a good chance the U.S. would be deterred that none of its forces would arrive. And those that did arrive would even if they were highly effective, you know, take submarines, for example, we often talk about submarines. And here I've given a lot of thought to what, you know, what, how could uh, the U.S. submarine force act to defend Taiwan? But I've concluded that it, it just, it's a bridge that's too far. 
there's too many uh, constraints uh, on our submarines. I mean, for example, submarines have a uh, small magazine. That is, they have very limited number of weapons, and it's very difficult to reload the submarine. So you can't can't be reloaded on station. It has to return to a base somewhere. And of course, the Chinese know where all those bases are. So, you know, just in, with very crude kind of torpedo hit model, you can conclude that while U.S. Navy submarines in the area could put a lot of hurt on the Chinese Navy, that they would not have nearly enough firepower to impact a uh, campaign of lasting two to three weeks or four weeks. And by that time, China would have a strong lodgment on the island and be flowing forces in that could not be interdicted. So my general thought here, and um, apologies if I've given you more detail than you wanted to know, but you know, looking at the details of this is exceedingly important. And I just, to me, uh, I see immense destruction. I see an island completely destroyed. I see uh, China winning this war, uh, perhaps at a very bloody cost, you know, Casualties would be huge on both sides. And if the United States intervened, indeed, uh, many thousands of Americans would die as well. Uh, hopefully not tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or more Americans. But it could, you know, there is a scenario where things go badly for China. And, um, you know, we do maybe succeed in the first rounds where this escalates and escalates and escalates and, and until we trade cities or use tactical nuclear weapons, which is uh, quite a live scenario by the way, both in Ukraine, but also in the Taiwan scenario. So, um, yeah, John, this is, uh, in, in summary, it's a very dark picture all around. So given that dark picture, should we be rethinking strategic ambiguity? There's a whole history there, which you can go into if that's clarifying, but is it still a suitable posture for us? Well, here's what I advise. Strategic ambiguity has some, has some advantages. You know, these are very tough choices uh, that the U.S. would have to make. Um, and I think in some ways, um, you know, some kind of like if we change ambiguity to clarity, I see huge downsides. I, I actually think that could ignite the war right away. Uh, in other words, the, the minute we say uh, ambiguity is over, we're we're moving an armored division over to, you know, protect Taipei. Uh, at that moment, I, I think China would strike. Uh, that, that's what they've said they've done, they would do, and they would regard, you know, any move to put U.S. forces into Taiwan as a, uh, as a more or less a, uh, declaration of war. So, so that kind of clarity is, is, uh, I think, uh, highly dangerous. And, and by the way, that is one that is gaining currency in Washington. So I, I'm very concerned about that. Um, you know, in, under strategic ambiguity, we can um, maintain uh, some kind of influence on the situation and um, possibly encourage um, Taiwan quietly to to arm itself. You know, as a, in the in maybe in the way that Ukraine has done. You know, with lots of javelins and stingers and so forth. You know, one can imagine a kind of strategic clarity in the other direction, and and here I think. I would like to see an honest debate among Americans about this conflict and how it looks. And I think Americans are very, you know, gradually coming around to the point of view that that uh, just in the same way that we're very glad that that uh, President Biden ruled out war with Russia, that I think he would also rule out uh, he and any likely president once they had looked at how destructive what were the nuclear risks and so forth, they would come to the conclusion that we should rule out 
a U.S.-China war over Taiwan. It's just too uh, too dangerous, uh, too fraught with risk, too likely to cost a large amount of American lives uh, for uh, uncertain uh, ends. So, you know, I do think that debate should be had, but I also think that uh, it could be a bit destabilizing now to to try to aim for a kind of strategic clarity that that abandons Taiwan that that uh, as it were throws them to the sharks that's that's a bridge too far but but I mean I do think some quiet discussions with leaders in Taipei have to be had where they say look you know look at what happened in Ukraine you do not want this to happen to your island uh, you know the, arguably the Ukrainians are doing extremely well, you know, under the circumstances, and yet still their, their country has been uh, destroyed, more or less. They're, uh, you know, they're dependent on, on foreigners for assistance. And, uh, you know, really what is absolutely necessary, and here, you know, I, I would like to underline this point that um, could wiser leadership by uh, in Kiev have have uh, found a compromise? I think so. You know, neutrality. Uh, you know, and here Taiwan leaders should look at this and say, hey, well, you know, maybe neutrality, as it were, is is a better course. Maybe um, seeking compromise with the mainland. Maybe this can be done. I, people often forget the leaders of Taiwan and China met quite recently, and at the end of 2015, it was an important moment. It was an amicable meeting, actually much better than the Putin-Zelensky meeting. So, I mean, there there is, people often forget that there are actual diplomatic tools to uh, that can be used to solve this dispute. I would like to see, you know, instead of American diplomats saying, oh, we have nothing to say on this issue, you know, of, of this relationship. No, I don't think that's right. We should use our influence to try to help find a diplomatic compromise. And if we put some energy at this and some thought, I, I think... Um, that could be done. And strategic ambiguity would permit that, in my view, and, and uh, could allow that to go forward. But it, it requires some, as it were, some tough love with our friends in Taipei. China has also been securing permission from other countries and territories for military bases and equipment there. There's recent reporting about um, the Solomon Islands and Cambodia. And policymakers are watching this and trying to discern what China's intentions might be there. Um, how do you see that? Yeah, a lot of chatter about this. And um, it seems like China is sort of poking its its uh, head into every kind of part of the world. You know, really, anywhere you look now, you can see uh, Chinese influence. Well, it's not a surprise to me. I mean, um, China, in my view, ha has the largest economy on earth. I mean, if you if you go by the nominal numbers, you, the U.S. economy is still number one. But by the, um, if you use purchasing power parity, another uh, methodology for measuring economies, by the way, used by the World Bank, Goldman Sachs, and a lot of you know, a lot of um, leading economists take this PPP methodology more seriously. They, you see that China's economy is already substantially larger, and you know, as a result, you know, we shouldn't be surprised that China is the largest trading partner of so many countries, even in Latin America these days, which is a bit shocking. But so, so no surprise, really, to see China kind of um, involved in all the countries all over the world, really. Uh, and um, yes, there has been some uh, indication that there might be, you know, more Chinese military bases abroad. Right now, we have one. We have one official Chinese military base abroad. This one is in East Africa, Djibouti. Uh, 
Um, and you know, we could we could talk about Djibouti. I think China's been learning some lessons from that. Um, but you know, I, I try to keep. You know, we've got to see the larger context for this, right? The U.S. has, uh, I think, over 700 uh, military facilities abroad, 700 folks, and China has one now. So, you know, I think if we retain some perspective, realize that uh, China is a, uh, you know, is a superpower. I Some people don't like to use that word. I have no problem using that word at all. You know, it, there are many areas in which China already exceeds American power. So we just have to get used to this idea of uh, sharing the world that China is indeed going to be a global power. If we're smart, we'll use restraint and try to steer China in a constructive direction. And I don't think that has to be so hard. I mean, there's a lot of good evidence that China is already steering itself in that direction. I mean, look at uh, how much they've done on UN peacekeeping. Um, it's, it's very impressive. I mean, did you know uh, China has soldiers in places, uh, dangerous places, you know, like Lebanon, for example, they're pulling a lot of mines out of the ground in Lebanon. That's really important work. So, I mean, there's, you know, I could give you many examples, but there's reason to believe, you know, that, that we can share the world with China, that China can be a kind of responsible actor on the world stage. So we should be encouraging all these impulses, really. And uh, by you know, by, uh, you know, losing our heads or having our hair on fire every time we hear about, you know, the possibility of a Chinese base somewhere, I think that's very wrongheaded and leads us down a, this into this kind of dangerous escalation spiral, which is uh, it's the opposite of what I recommended. I recommended in my book, uh, my 2015 book on U.S.-China relations, I recommended something called, I call it cooperation spiral, where we both kind of outline our long-term what we want to see and work together with China here. And now we see the opposite is escalation spirals. You see that going on in the Solomons here, but I think it's, it's quite, you know, it's so premature and, and very wrongheaded. I think to view that as a threat, um, China would have to, you know, take much more, uh, aggressive moves to, to be anything like a threat there. Um, now look, I, I don't, I know in world war two, we fought a huge battle, a massive, um, uh, battle of attrition with uh, Japan in the in that same area, and I think that is you know the, if the Chinese were smarter, they would have realized that this was probably a, not a great spot to to get to work here uh, because of those emotional ties to the Solomon Islands that we have. But I you know I just do not see any kind of major threat forming here. I mean, remember the, the one of the major reasons we fought that battle with Japan was to prevent Japan from cutting us off from Australia. But Australia today is a very uh, powerful country, and uh, you know they don't they don't need our defense uh, really. And um, they would even if cut off momentarily somehow, you know, in the worst case scenario, uh, they would fight very well independently and so forth. It's really the North Pacific that matters more for the United States, uh, Japan, and um, the kind of broader balance of power there in terms of holding our positions. So the South Pacific, in my view, is uh, we. we we shouldn't get a be in a bonnet over, uh, you know, the Chinese playing around here and there. Um, you know, one more thing I'll say that is, look, things have changed since the 1930s and 40s when when those islands were absolutely critical to, you know, that's how you move step by step across the Pacific. It's just not like that anymore. We have nuclear submarines today. Uh, they don't need, uh, you know, coaling stations or, you know, it's more or less they're, they're uh fight independently um and uh and moreover with precision strike weapons you you can uh, more or less destroy any kind of fixed base 
So we shouldn't overestimate the use of like any one facility. It's better just to have kind of a broad network of places, um, as I say, places, not bases. Um, and uh, I don't see a huge danger of China kind of building up some kind of facility. But it, the point is, we would have plenty of time to watch and recalibrate if we had to, you know, if China was becoming much more aggressive or if these facilities subsequently were seen as a threat. But in the meantime, we, we should be more relaxed and try to engage China in a kind of cooperative approach. By the way, Djibouti is an interesting place. I'll just comment quickly. This is China's base in East Africa. Guess what? It's located right next to an American base. And I think that was by design. I mean, you know, if they were up to something incredibly nefarious, they wouldn't have put it next to an American base because they know that we would know exactly what's going on there. So they wanted us to know what was going on there. And they wanted, you know, and by the way, France and Japan also have facilities there and other countries. So, I mean, um, I think that's maybe the best way to view this is like, you know, could the U.S. and China cooperate in Africa, for example? Possibly. Well, if our bases are almost co-located, it makes some sense. So, uh, you know, I could give you some more examples of this, but there are ways that we can conceive of where the U.S. and China are actually partners in international security and not kind of rivals and hypothetical or potential enemies. Um, we really need to recalibrate our thinking on that and not fall into this, you know, look, I think I, I've heard on your podcast and so forth, you know, human people are very prone to kind of uh, xenophobic kind of rivalry. Um, we're, that's kind of how our, our minds are, are uh, trained by evolution to think in this very suspicious way, you know, in-group, out-group thinking and so forth. So this is very, this is, will easily lead us astray and into a awful catastrophic set of wars that could be nuclear wars. So we have to fight against this tendency and uh, see the possibilities for, um, cooperation, which I think are there, actually. I've been following your work for years, and I know you have a great depth of expertise in both Russia and China. Uh, but I do want to ask you about India uh, and how India plays into all this great power competition. I believe India is being courted in a certain sense by Russia, China, and the United States in different ways. Um, how do you see that dynamic and what do you think makes sense for the United States there? Yeah, I mean, India is a very interesting wild card in international affairs. You know, I think um, this is a country that has uh, enormous potential. You know, everybody knows that again. Uh, we, we've seen, uh, you know, we all know uh, we don't just like Indian food, but India's economy is is doing uh, amazing things uh, in areas like IT. And, you know, I know American investors are very uh, excited about India and, and rightly so. I, I mean, the country has a lot of problems, of course, uh, but I fully expect, you know, that India possibly could outpace China along a lot of metrics. Again, if you use those PPP um, uh, methods for looking out, you know, decades in the future, you know, the trends all point to uh, that the India might well exceed China in, uh, well, both in population, but also in GDP. So, I mean, it, it, at the end of my 2015 book, I really try to look out into that world where, where the U.S. is not a minor power, but it really is India and China that are the, the really global superpowers at that point. Uh, and I do think in a way we do have to plan for that kind of future. Now, will they be, uh, you know, rivals on the verge of war with each other or will they be, you know, develop a more kind of, you know, uh, working uh, kind of pragmatic relationship? I've, I hope for the latter. And I think if the U.S. was wise, instead of trying at every point to turn India against China, I think we would be uh, much more enlightened if we tried to encourage the two Asian giants to uh 
start to cooperate and um, and realize that, you know, fighting over, uh, you know, this uh, ter- terrain in the Himalayas, you know, the, where they have uh, glaciers and, and uh, you know, it's an incredibly uh, a hostile kind of terrain, picturesque, but, but uh, extremely difficult and really not worth fighting over. I mean, there's no uh, arable land or anything up there, and it's, it's really very difficult to maintain troops up on that frontier. So, I mean, you know, I don't think either country really, really wants to uh, be in a constant battle up there, committing huge resources to uh, maintaining uh, massive formations of troops up there on the in, in the uh, Himalayas. But I mean, they're kind of driven by nationalism and rivalry to do so. So but and, and I mean, this could get much, much worse, unquestionably, if uh, if China and India come to blow. So, I, you know, I would like to see our policy um you know, here I think we need a little less realpolitik, um, and we we should try to. Uh, and, and I think China would become a little less paranoid if if we if they saw that we were not constantly trying to push um, use India as a kind of chess piece. And by the way, I don't think the Indians appreciate being used as a chess piece either. Um, and and you know, I, I think we have fomented some uh, you know kind of a backlash in India that we maybe are seeing in the Ukraine war that. You know where we may have liked the Indians to sign up right along with us, as as we hope, because we were calling them an, a great democratic, you know, ally, and yet they've taken a very, um, you know, how to put it, uh, contradictory approach here, uh, and they've said they're not going to break their relationships w- relationship with Russia, which is very tight. Now Russia is is all is trying to kind of pull India and China together, kind of if you will, in a more anti-American alignment, but they certainly want to keep. You know, they do not want to give up on India, uh, although they've been making inroads with Pakistan now, too. I think at China's behest a bit, but uh, it's a complicated picture. But, you know, to me, uh, this all points to multipolarity um, and multipolarity. You know, a lot of international relations theorists are very uneasy about multipolarity because they think it's unstable. Um, but I think there are some real virtues here, too, um, and that generally what it can mean is that we decrease the uh, potential for rivalry and escalation, right? In a in a bipolar world, you know, if it's the U.S. and China or the U.S. against China and Russia here, you know, looks a lot like the 1950s. And remember the 1950s, it was just crisis after crisis after crisis and each one more dangerous than the next till we got to the Cuban Missile Crisis. And uh, we don't want to go back there, folks, but that's kind of where we are right now. This is looking a lot like the 1950s. Uh, uh, this time, of course, China is, is much more powerful than back then, but it's, it's similarly dangerous. Um, and I think India, you know, I would like to see India stand up more on the world stage, you know, get much more involved in peacekeeping, peacemaking. I had even, you know, back in that article I wrote in January, 2020 about the Donbass, uh, issue and how to maybe solve this Ukraine crisis for once for all, I said, let, let Asia take the lead. Let's see Chinese and Indian troops, maybe with Japanese peacekeeping troops in the Donbass, you know, they can accomplish some good because the Russians will not allow European uh, peacekeepers to go into Donbass. So, you know, w- could you imagine, John, uh, India and China working together on the world stage to uh, make peace in, in volatile areas? I, I think that that's a future I could... I could sign up for. <laughs> you do a lot of uh, military and security analysis, but I, I wonder if you f- think we're focusing our competitive edge in the wrong areas. Is it better to broaden the notion of how we effectively 
compete, bringing in economic growth and scientific progress and uh, education and making our domestic features more attractive, et cetera? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I really agree with that. And that's one reason I like Cato so much is, is, um, you know, this, I mean, that our country has so much going for it, uh, with so many, um, you know, and so many people look to us as, as leaders. I mean, even in, you know, I can say having spent a lot of time in China and Russia, there are so many people that admire our country. They truly do. And uh, not just in the, you know, even in, in leadership circles. So, uh, we have so much going for us. We've just somehow seemed to step in it all the time, if you will. And, um, why, you know, I, I do think, you know, we, the restraint community, um, needs to uh, stand up robustly and try to um, fight against these impulses toward uh, militarism and rivalry. And we need to um, rededicate ourselves to, you know, our founding vision of our country. You know, everybody should go read uh, Washington's uh, 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 final address and so forth and, and, you know, realize the strengths of our country, you know, and, and, and appreciate that, um, uh, Kennan and pe- thinkers like that said, you, you want to be a leader in the world, you want to um, have influence, then set a good example. That's certainly the best way to do it. Let's make our country, you know, um, as free as possible and as, um, you know, prosperous and, and equal, you know, in other words, share the wealth and, and make ourselves an example. And, and we have done that throughout our history, but we've sort of fallen off the wagon here. And now, you know, the U.S. is, I think, lagging in many indicators here. Um, so I think we have to rediscover that. But part of that is, is has to be a kind of restraint-oriented set of policies where we're not intervening all across the globe all the time and, and, and getting ourselves involved in everybody's business. Um, and, and, you know, I honestly, as I look at the most dangerous flashpoints today, whether it's Korean Peninsula, but really the Taiwan issue and Ukraine, these are exceedingly dangerous. I mean, both have all of those issues have major nuclear shadows. You know, and I don't think the U.S. has major uh, national security interests. That is, our security is not vitally threatened in any of these situations. So we can play the role of, you know, coming up with great ideas to diffuse the tensions. But we do not have to actively engage, certainly not with our military forces, but we should also not be, uh, you know, squandering our national wealth uh, in these uh, horrible uh, and intractable conflicts, which after all, we have to let the people who live in these regions settle them themselves, you know, and that's very difficult to kind of not be in control of everything. But this is, um, as we all know, this is a problem in Washington that we, that we restrainers are trying to work on. One of the through lines in this discourse is the risk of a U.S. policy that's tough towards both Russia and China, and therefore kind of pushing them together. And I want to ask a few questions about that. You have written that, quote, de-dollarization may be another economic result of a consolidated Russia-China quasi-alliance. Can you explain that a little more? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I am really focused on uh, Russia-China relations now. It's, it's, it was a big topic before uh, the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, but it's, it's maybe even a bigger topic now. I've been writing a book on this issue. Uh, for the last couple of years. So I, you know, I, I wonder if I'll have to throw a few chapters out, but I, I think I'm okay. But it's, it's, uh, it's hugely important. And um, unquestionably, there is a very, uh, the co- I, I think the coalescing of uh, Moscow and Beijing continues. 
maybe slightly different trajectory now and 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 there are some new dynamics here after the war but it it's it is um this is a, a formidable uh relationship um i think many people don't appreciate how um how broad it is but also how deep it is so uh, we, you know we can talk about the different aspects of it um but uh, to address your question about de-dollarization there i mean there are some economic consequences of uh, of what we're seeing uh today and um you know there is a a, a question of how far Ru- uh, china will go to support russia um and my answer generally is it will go quite far but you know at the same time trying to protect its corporate interests so uh, you know they are walking a bit of a fine line but one of the economic results is is uh, we could say de-dollarization because it um a lot of the transactions you'd be shocked that that chinese and russians were doing a lot of transactions in dollars formerly but now uh, that's all switching and they're using the the chinese yuan or or uh, renminbi if you will and this um, this may uh, be expanded to encompass other countries, if you will, along the Belt and Road. Uh, Iran has shown a lot of interest in this. So you know what we're seeing is is uh, gradually developing a a uh, group of countries that uh, you know don't use uh, American dollars at all. And now I actually think that um, we don't want to get too upset about this myself because I, I actually think that. The strength of the dollar has been somewhat problematic for the U.S. economy. That's a whole different discussion, John. But um, but yes, I mean, in a way, you could argue that the san- one impact of all these sanctions and, and uh, you know, we seem to sanction everybody everywhere at this point. Oh, that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but it's it's really uh, incredible how often we resort to the sanctions tool. But one Im- impact of this is it. You know, any country that has some disagreements with the U.S. Would, is, is wise, you know, to to think about um, how to avoid um, these vulnerabilities associated with uh, a lot of use of dollars. So, so yeah, in, in effect, we are uh, um, helping de-dollarization. But, but of course, the, the Russia-China, um, if I call it a quasi-alliance, but this um, meeting of the minds here is... Um, is an important factor in world affairs. I, I think, you know, already we could see the Ukraine war would be substantially different if China wasn't kind of lending its uh, its support in many ways to Russia. Uh, you know, some have gone as far as to say that, that Putin visited China in order to get a green light. You know, is that true or not? We, we can debate that. Uh, I'm, I'm a little skeptical there, but the claim has been made. And we can talk about, you know, does China benefit or not? This is a big debate uh, among China specialists these days. But but uh, where, where would you like to go on discussing this relationship, John? Well, let's just, uh, you've also written that um, on the military security side, relations between China and Russia are thoroughly institutionalized. So there are both economic and military consequences. And I just wonder if you have any ideas about how to break that dynamic where we're pushing China and Russia together in this way? Yeah, it may well be too late. Um, You know, this didn't start yesterday, uh, as you know. I mean, we've, you know, we started our sort of pivot toward the Pacific, you know, really, we can go as far back as the the 90s and early 2000s. We were already building up on Guam. So, you know, China for a long time thinks that 
the U.S. is out to contain it and therefore is inclined to uh, look for friends in the world like Russia. And, and Russia, you know, arguably, and, and the argument was made, I think, as recently as the Trump administration, there, I remember um, John Bolton was sent on a mission to Moscow and he was, I think, if I recall, this would have been around 2017 or something, he, you know, he was supposed to explain to Vladimir Putin why China is the real threat. And I remember reading the Russian papers at the time, and they were all kind of laughing at Bolton for, for making this attempt, you know, to pull Russia so brazenly away from China. Um, was that really conceivable? Uh, you know, I mean, from a simple question, you can say, what what does Russia gain from making an enemy of China? You know, <laughs> that would be exceedingly um dangerous approach to take. And I think Russia now realizes, you know, they, they know how strong China is. And and while in the back of their minds, they may have some kind of fear of China, but I mean, Putin has pretty strongly said, you know, he's not going to tolerate um, a kind of, um, if you will, a, uh, a very, an anti-China approach. Um, and, and he may have, you know, the Russian leadership at times has shown, you know, a disposition to they don't want to be too dependent on China. They want they want a strong relationship with Japan, South Korea, you know, um, uh, different different uh, other countries out there, Vietnam for, and India, of course, you brought that up before. So um, anyway, the point is, after the last 10 years or, if you will, 20 years even of of, of this growing great power competition, you know, the. I think the alignment between Russia and China is, is like I said, very deep, very broad. And uh, so the idea that, you know, this could be changed very quickly or that suddenly Xi Jinping would wake up and say, gosh, uh, Putin, what a reckless guy. You know, I think we need to rethink this whole thing. That was very, very unrealistic. And, and uh, you know, I think even those who have argued that this is just a marriage of convenience, that was very brittle kind of relationship, I think, did not realize that actually this the relationship you know it has security benefits for both it has diplomatic benefits you know I've I've looked on the Korean Peninsula they cooperate closely they cooperate closely in Latin America Central Asia Africa you name it um, and economically you know this is for China you know Russia is like this treasure storehouse of resources to feed China's kind of uh, endless appetite for resources. And uh, Russia is increasingly looks to China as kind of a model, which is a bit shocking because the Russians have always had kind of had this kind of condescending attitude toward China. But increasingly, they are much more respectful and thinking, gee, how can we uh, benefit here? Uh, and just on small things like just look how Russia has really come to understand that drones are essential in warfare. Right. I mean, they and guess who's the world leader in drone, you know, drone making drones. Uh, so um you know, absolutely, they are um, kind of envious of China's position and want to learn from it. They don't, I don't see, you know, you could find the odd Russia, mm, Russia, Russian leader who, or Russian uh, pundit who was kind of anti-China. They're, they're out there and I, I do keep track of them, but they're, they're more and more rare. And, and part of it is just easily explained that Russia has nowhere to go in the world. They're, you know, condemned by the West so thoroughly that now um, they have no choice at all. So, you know, I guess China's in the catbird seat and, and they seem to want to hold Russia close uh, for all the reasons I outlined above, but also because they know that Russia has kind of a common worldview with them. Uh, and it, it is remarkable how much their worldview um, lines up these days. 
that is between uh, Beijing and, and Moscow. Well, on that uh, dismal note, thank you, Lyle Goldstein, for speaking with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Really enjoyed the visiting, and this is just a tremendous podcast. So keep up the great work, John. Thanks, Lyle.